Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast. I am Krista Bontrager, and I am excited to bring you this conversation today with my friend, And we're going to be talking about the issue of Christian, Eastern Orthodoxy, um, Oriental Orthodoxy, all of those things. And I'm getting more and more letters from people that are wanting help in conversing and thinking about their friends who are converting to Orthodoxy. And so I thought it would be great to talk about it with the person in my life that I have been on that road with. Story time, friends. Once upon a time, I had a friend named Michelle, and we worked together, and we had a nice little friendship. We would go out to lunch. We would laugh. It was a great time. And then one day, I got an email, and she sent out an email to all the staff that she had converted to being a Coptic Christian, and she had changed her name to Anastasia. I was not a fan of this plan. Um, and it it inaugurated a, a difficult season for us as friends. But we were committed to staying friends and thankfully through her grace toward me and um, letting me continue to call her Michelle a little bit longer so that my brain could adjust to the new reality. Um, I then stepped into a season of how do I walk a path with my friend Anastasia, who I'm going to probably call Sia on on the show here because that's what she goes by in everyday life. But um, how do I walk that path with her? That how do I think about her? Is it did she convert to another religion? Is she still my sister in the Lord? What happened to Michelle? (laughs) These were my questions. And so we're going to talk about it. I'm so appreciative of her courage to come have this public conversation with me. And we're going to talk a little bit about her book uh, that has her testimony of her conversion, along with her husband, but he's not here. So we're not going to talk about his side of the story. But, um, you know, I, we're going to talk about some of these questions and our journey together. So, spoiler alert, we're still friends. And here she is. <laughs> I'm sitting here as you're doing the intro and I'm trying not to cry laughing. <laughs> What a train wreck of an announcement that was that when I announced my my name change and my conversion. All in one little email. It was one paragraph. Okay, it's fantastic. <laughs> but it wasn't just that. It was, I sent out an email, by the way, I'm no longer Michelle. Now I'm Anastasia. I converted to Coptic Orthodoxy. And if you have any questions, feel free to ask. And then I bounced to a meeting. <laughs> And people, people in the office were telling me that, like, my desk was converged on and I was nowhere to be bound. <laughs> I ran away. That was about the worst possible way I could have done it. Yeah. So let's start a little bit further back. Um, you and I actually grew up in the same city. Mm-hmm. We just went to different high schools in, mm-hmm. in the city. And um, maybe tell us a little bit about your spiritual journey, uh, where you started, kind of a little bit of the different streams of Protestantism that you went through. Yeah. 
Well, I was uh, a kid that grew up in a time and place where you could send a six-year-old down the street and around the corner to walk to church by themselves. Um, so my family would do that. They weren't very religious at all, um, but there was this little um, Christ Church of the Valley. or mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was right around the corner. And um, they would send me, I would go to church, I'd make macaroni crosses, you know, that type of thing, and learn the VBS songs, and they didn't care as long as it got me out of their hair. So I was about six years old, but I just kept going all the way through junior high, and um, I really took it seriously, which was kind of annoying to my family at times, but I, I can't remember. They thought they were just getting you out of the house. Yes, <laughs> okay. exactly. Uh, but I can't remember a time when I didn't love the Lord, was it, where I wasn't following the Lord. Um, but then that leads to when I was 13, and my mom had been newly married, and her husband's family was from West Virginia. They were good Baptist family. Okay. And Baptist was very different from Protestant evangelical. Yes. So I went, met the family, and my white-haired grandma, was. she was the sweetest thing ever. And she asked me one point, you know, when did you ask Jesus into your heart? And this was foreign to me. Like, what, what do you mean, ask Jesus into my heart? And she looked panicked and it was like, you you haven't asked Jesus into your heart? And I'm like, no, but I love him. I've been following him. And she assured me that if I have not repented of my sin, asked him into my heart, said the sinner's prayer, that I was going to hell. And that was a little frightening for you, I'm sure. A little terrifying. Yeah. A little terrifying because I thought we was good. <laughs> you know? And um, so, hey, tell me what to say. And... I, I said the sinner's prayer. It was kind of weird because it's like, okay, I said it. She was excited and, you know, told the family and all. Oh, it was this big deal. It's like, okay, I don't really feel any differently, but yay, <laughs> I'm going to have it now. So that was, that was through junior high. Okay. And then after that, did you start attending a Baptist church? Did you, did you continue going to church through high school? Yeah, I stayed actually at the same church okay. um, for 30 years. Okay. So one church, it was uh, Protestant, Evangelical. Okay. And on to Nam. Yeah, and it's now kind of a mega church in our area. It is. Is what eventually became a, a mega church. Yeah. So you were there for a long time. Yeah. And then you kind of ventured, I think, into some other non-denominational types of spaces. Yeah. What happened was... is when I was at um, the the mega church that you, but it was the same church. It just evolved yes. over the, the decades. Yeah. I ended up attending a Bible study at a church that I guess you would call it a sister church because okay. the pastor at this other mega church actually came from this one, but this church functioned in the gifts. Yeah. Okay. So was a lot well, more charismatic. A little more charismatic. Okay. A lot more. Yeah. Actually, I had not been exposed to that. So I was attending Bible studies over there, but Sunday over here, and was exposed to a lot of new things there that I had never heard of. And then I found that there had actually been a rift, and that's how the two churches had begun. At some point in time, sprinkled in there, I also was reconnected with my father, who I had been separated from for about two decades, and that whole side of the family was Jewish. So I wanted to explore that. So 
I started going to a messianic uh, Jewish congregation for which ironically used to meet like two blocks from my house yes exactly (laughs) so that was that was interesting that was uh, another experience then really it just it it was interesting because the the mega church that was charismatic that came from the other church his brother left and he started a church so my husband and I followed that church then the associate pastor who we were really close friends with left that church and started another church so we went to that church so it was a lot of church splits. It, it was a lot of church splits, but all of that didn't happen until I was in my 30s. So I was in the same church for 30 okay. years, then went to these other church, but they were really like branch off, branch off, branch off. So, okay. Yeah. So then you're going along kind of in the charismatic, non denominational streams, going to different churches. What leads you and your husband to a point where you're like, hey, I've got an idea? let's start going to St. John's, the Coptic Orthodox Church, which I had driven by a hundred times because it's in my old neighborhood. And every time, no joke, I would drive by there, I would think, I don't know what really Coptic Orthodox even means. So it never occurred to me, hey, Bob, let's go visit (laughs) over here. Yeah. So what what were the circumstances that led you to, to... Start investigating that. Well, where trouble usually starts is with my husband. Okay, <laughs> that's true. And a lot of people that are in that area call that church the mosque because it's that the huge with the white dome and it's yeah. just very... We're not really sure what it is. And we're not really sure. And there's people walking around with black robes and long beards. Yeah. This, oh, this was during the time of Osama bin Laden. So the first time I saw one of these priests that's Egyptian, dark-skinned, black robe, very severe-looking with a long beard. I was like, oh, I'm a little scared. <laughs> but my husband was doing a um, Bible study with our youth, and it was, how did we get the, the canon of Scripture, the 66 books that we have in the Bible that we have now? He was reading F.F. F. Bruce and right. then came across St. Athanasius quite a lot, and St. Athanasius was in Alexandria, Egypt. Right. So he saw, my husband saw this church that said, Sea of Alexandria. And it was an Orthodox church. And we know that Orthodox don't change anything ever. So he just wanted to go and explore historically. Um, he had no I, no intention of, let's, let's go to church. And, you know, so he just convert. had been seeing the name Athanasius. He, he was curious to learn more about Alexandria as a historical early Christian city of influence. Right. And so that's what kind of led you to, hey, look, this church claims that they're from that city. Mm-hmm. Let's go check it out. Right. And because him knowing that Orthodox, they don't change, he just wanted to see the historicity of how it played out and the rubrics and such. So he went by himself the first time. I did not go. And when he came home, what was interesting is, you know my husband. He's he's rough around the edges and sarcastic. And, and he, everyone used to call him Grinch because rah, rah, rah. But lovable. He was peaceful. And he was peaceful for days. It was like almost like an aroma that just lingered with him. And even my kids noticed it. And uh, he'd usually be hollering at them in the backseat of the car to be quiet. And he's laughing with them. And Joe's like, who are you? 
So the following week, I attended, and, and here's a fun story, is it was during Lent, and there are, are six Sundays in Lent, and one Sunday is Prodigal Son Sunday, and that's the first Sunday that he set foot in the church was Prodigal Son Sunday. The second one is Samaritan Woman Sunday, and that's when I came. So that was my first time of stepping into a Coptic Orthodox church. So first impressions, you go in. Um, I've I've been to St. John's. I've been inside there one time, and so it's it's a very beautiful um, building. Very, it's just has a lot of art. And quickly, I learned, you know, just how much symbolism there is in the Orthodox tradition. But what were your impressions coming in there? Like that is. You're not going to see the worship team up front with some guitars and drums. No. And you were on the worship team yes. at, at your various churches in the past. So this was not that. What did, what did you think? Like, what have I walked into? What have I walked into? Yeah. My, my Protestant spidey senses were tingling. It was all the things that are wrong. Uh, it was grand. It had red carpet. It, it does have red carpet. It has red carpet. Yep. Uh, it there was a lady at the back that was standing in front of an icon and some candles were lit and you know she was standing there and crossing herself I'm like ah, this is not cool she's praying to dead people and um, again just the grandeur and then a priest you know was running by me ready to start the the uh, service and there was like, I mean, a smattering of people there. When I say that, like a smattering. There was probably six people in that grand building. Oh, okay. And the service was about to start. And as as he was coming up the aisle, quickly headed to the front, I saw people jump up and reach out and kiss his hand. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, no, no. This is like, this will be my first and last time. <laughs> this is very... This is not for me. This is not for me. Okay. Um. And then uh, somebody came, and she was a young gal, her name was Mariam, and she came and sat with us and she said, would you like me to talk you through the liturgy? So what was her first tip off that you were a visitor? Uh, for, that I was white, that I was sitting on the men's side because the men and the women in that church sat on opposite sides. Probably that I looked like a deer in the headlights, completely confused. So that, and I was on time. Egyptians are never on time. So that's why there were six people there. And that's why there were six people there. Okay. So she came and, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So she came and uh, started talking me through things. She said, do you see the red carpet? This is, you'll see this in all of the Coptic churches all around the world because the blood of Christ and the blood of the saints is the foundation of the church. And then she started explaining the the censer and the clothing and the the wooden pews and every single thing. How wonderfully gracious of her. It was, and I can tell you that had she not come and sat down with me, that would have been my last time. I would not have come back. So she really created kind of a cultural bridge for you yeah. uh, to keep you coming because obviously you kept going. Yeah. And, uh, and eventually went through the catechesis process and, and conversion and everything. But that first encounter was pivotal in you you continuing yeah that's interesting 
um, what a lesson to to those of us, you know, wherever we pray to uh, make a visitor feel welcome. Exactly. Yeah, that's wonderful. So what kept you like, okay, I'm going to come back next week? Was it in the beginning? Like, these are all questions I've never asked Sia before. So this is literally like a raw conversation. So what what kept you coming back? Like, yeah, I'm going to come back next week. Was it more like, all right, I'm going to come back next week. Okay, that was okay. I'll come back next week. Or was it almost from the beginning? Like, no, I'm going to try this for six months. I'm going to keep going. How, how, how was that process? Yeah, no, it wasn't. I'm going to try this for six months. We had, again, we had no intention of converting. We weren't looking to convert. We weren't interested in like... We're serving at another... We were serving at another church. And our main focus, my husband and I, was let's see what history we can learn and take it back to our Protestant church. So for you, it was an educational field trip. Yeah, and an, an enrichment and maybe cross-pollination. Let them know a little bit about our world as Protestants. Uh, I We kept going on and off, but I have to say it was, it, it got to the point where it was, it felt perilous because at first it was, wow, this is beautiful. And when I found out the uh, church in, G- in Egypt was founded by St. Mark. So you have St. Paul, St. Peter going to Rome. St. Mark, like with the apostles. With the apostles. Okay. So Thomas goes to India and you have, you have the apostles going out and establishing the church. And so it was St. Mark that came to Egypt and brought the gospel there. That was new for me, that that depth and that richness. As a matter of fact, I just passed a church over in Azusa and they had this wonderful marquee and God bless them, but they're like seven years strong. Like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, baby, you're adorable. Um, so there was that. There was like so the historical rootedness for you. Yes. Of like, how do you even make the claim that you go all the way back? to St. Mark, like 6080. Yeah. You know, how, how does that even work? It boggles our minds as American Christians. Oh, and what's fantastic is I could pull out of my purse right now all of the patriarchs that literally is from our patriarch today all the way back and it lists them all the way to St. Mark. So you see the genetics there. Um, so there was that. There was the beauty of the, um, the symbolism. There was the richness of the history. There was the continuity. But then there were theological things that I had problems with and not just passive problems with. My husband and I have always been very, very involved in teaching, very involved in apologetics. And these are things that I dogmatically taught my kids against that were bad. Like praying to the saints, maybe issues about Mary, I'm guessing. Issues about Mary praying to the saints. Like I said, when I saw the woman in the back, you know, uh, even watching someone cross themselves seemed very superstitious to me. When I saw someone kissing the hand of the priest, when you have confession, when you sit with your priest to confess, it's like there is one mediator between God and man. That is Christ Jesus alone. Yeah. There were there were a number of things that were no small issues. But what started happening is in our research, and primarily, I'll, I'll give this to my husband, primarily his research, there were things that we were looking back to, let's say, 90 AD, maybe earlier, like with the D decay, 
what were the beliefs about salvation? What were the beliefs about the the efficacy of uh, baptism, of what is communion? How is a person saved? There were things that were early and universal in all of the churches that the apostles went to and are sustained to this day. So when you say the Didache, that's going to be a new word for a lot of people. Please impact that. Yeah. And so um, that's it. Didache just means teaching mm-hmm. in Greek. And it's an early kind of book of or summary of common practices within the early church. And it dates somewhere between 90 and 135 AD. So, you know, it's it's a very early document, um, not in the canon of scripture, but it offers, I think, an important historical glimpse at how the first century church understood themselves and understood how to live and worship together, how what the Christian life ought to look like. And so for you, as you were beginning to interact with those early primary sources, you thought, okay, these are things that the church has always believed everywhere. And I'm imagining that you saw a bit of a disconnect between those things and your life as a 21st century American Protestant. Yes, very much so. Now, I want everybody to understand we would never hang our hat on one document that it's deuterocanonical. Right. So we're talking about the writings of Athanasius. We're talking about writings of very established godly Christians, history, and then looking Which at Christian ones. apologists refer to all the time. Yes. I mean, if you're going to make a solid case for the Trinity, we still go back to Athanasius. Yes. You know, we go back to those early understandings for the deity of Christ, for what we call the hypostatic union, like all of these things as apologists, if we're going to make our case to the local Jehovah's Witness down the street, mm-hmm. this is how we do it. Yes. is we, we don't look at these as scripture, but we do look at them as helpful summaries from godly men who help us understand our faith. Right. Right. Okay. So here we are, and we are becoming more and more confident in the things that are core that were taught from the beginning. And so now we're in a position where it was odd enough that it was our Protestant church that was really drawing a line in the sand, not the Orthodox people. The The Orthodox, the priest that we were talking to at the time was like, we don't know how far salvation extends. So we would never say the Protestants aren't saved or these people aren't saved. That's that's God's business. So, but it was in the the Protestant church that I was attending, our home church, where all of a sudden I started seeing it where they would lift up the juice, you know, and the the cracker doing during communion. And the meditation was along the lines of this is just juice. This is just bread. There is nothing magical about it. It does nothing other than remind us of what Christ did for us on the cross. And in my head, I'm thinking, why are you drawing that line in the sand? But what does that have anything to do? Why is that the meditation? There's so much you can contemplate on, but that's a line in the sand between us and them. As far as Protestants, we're still protesting. We still are saying this has no efficacy. Protest is in our name. Yes. It's in our DNA. Yes. And so 
there was that. And then we went to our niece's baptism and she was probably about 14 years old. And again, as she, she goes down into the baptismal font, she wants to make an outward decision of, you know, outward profession of an inward decision. Yes. And so it's the liturgy of all the Baptists. Yes. And, and again, overtly saying and clarifying, there is nothing that happens in this water. There's like, this is just symbolic and this is just her decision. And in my head, I'm screaming, stop. Like, why are you, why do you keep drawing this line in the sand? Like, why are you trying to push me to choose one or the other? And obviously it wasn't intentional, but it was, I just had never noticed it at a pro- as a Protestant before how much we were still protesting. Like, this is so unnecessary to say at a baptism. So, so I think, one of the things that I've learned from you in that journey, you know, since we're on the sacraments, is that historically speaking, if we were to look at the trajectory of history, the view of an element of mystery in the sacraments, of in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, that there's some supernatural component. Now, different streams of Catholicism or the Reformed or the Orthodox might parse out that mystery a little differently, but I think we could all agree that a mystery happens, that something supernatural happens, that when you are making that profession of faith, it is not just a naturalistic um, thing that's happening. That, that God is working in and through those means, just as we believe God it works in and through Scripture, that, that his word will not return to us void, that there is a supernatural component. There's a difference between reading the Bible and reading The Hobbit. Yes, I would hope so. Yeah, yes. and, and that something supernatural can happen through the pages of Scripture. The Holy Spirit will work in and through that. Everybody, every Christian believes that. We can agree on that. It's not a merely a book. And historically speaking, Christians have agreed that there is some spiritual mystery that happens in and through the sacraments. And that was the, the universal view of the church mm-hmm. until we got to the Anabaptists mm-hmm. in the 1600s. Okay, so let's just and this is one of the things I've learned from you as I've been on this journey and trying to understand, like, how do I think about your experience and your road? Yeah. I've had to be on my own journey as well. Uh-huh. And I think one of the things I've, I've I've learned from you is, look, like, this was the teaching of the church mm-hmm. until the 1600s. So let's let's not be so knee-jerk reactionary as to act as if um, the symbolic view Mm -hmm. that this is merely water or merely bread. Let's not pretend Mm -hmm. like this is the quote-unquote biblical view. Right. There's some history here. And just as we look at things like the Trinity or the deity of Christ through a historical lens, these books like Athanasius help us as apologists. Let's not act as if we came to an an understanding of scripture completely divorced from history. 
I think that's your point is yeah. you started noticing like, wait a minute, there's a there's kind of a disconnect here of why are we saying these things? Why are we acting as if like almost like we have a better understanding than the all of the Christians that came prior to the 1600s? That's a little peculiar. Yes. Uh, and I think that that's something I've had to wrestle through you know, myself in, in watching your journey. That's what I hear you saying. Yes. As a matter of fact, I literally heard what you're saying from different sources as unreal as it sounds, that we do have a better understanding now than they had done then because we have, we have understanding of the language and, and researching the cultures. And there, there's a lot of things that academia and it's like, but they were there and they were living it. And um, yeah. So that kind of put a little rock in your shoe of, of like, I'm not sure I could go all the way into the Protestant framework as much as I yeah. had it before. It, yeah. You know, the, to be completely disconnected from history. R- right, right. And then there was um, someone that said that after the death of the last apostle, you can't trust oral teaching anymore, that you can only trust the Bible. And it, that was dumbfounding to me because it was the church, it was Christians, it was the Athanasius and the Irenaeus, and it was the councils that gave us the the scriptures. They, they helped us to determine what are the scriptures. So you went to the entirety of all of the churches founded by the apostles and like what was the continuity in the teaching and and what things stood out as like we've never heard that and so this is how the scriptures were put together and so what once the book was put together okay we can't trust you anymore it's the book alone and it was such a strange it started i was like i grew up in this and all of a sudden this is sounding bizarre to me it's sounding foreign. And how is this sounding foreign to my ears when I literally grew up almost defending this? Yeah. So these were some of the the thoughts and the, and the road that you started to be on mm-hmm. and that eventually culminated in you converting. Yes. And going through the catechism process, which I think it was about a year yeah. of, of walking through that. Now, in the book, I talk a little bit more because it wasn't that simple. It was a year-long process. And there was the point where both my husband and I felt like we were in the middle of the ocean with no shore in sight because we simply could not go back because of the things we knew historically. But there were just, there were things we could not move forward into orthodoxy because we just felt like these things are heretical. So... Obviously, I mean, as you said earlier, spoiler alert, we we were able to resolve those things. But to be a person who loves the Lord and to be in the middle of nowhere and not know what God is going to do, and I can't go that way, and I can't go that way, and oh God, what are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) It's terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. So you had to work through the Mary problem. You had to work through the the pray to saints problems. And we won't go into all of that. Sure. How you resolve those things, those those answers can be gotten on other websites, but <laughs> I think that that you you had your process that you went through in that, but there was also the process I would imagine of the cross cultural issue of you're joining with a predominantly Egyptian 
group of Christians, Uh you know, and so that's, you're not just becoming Orthodox, like Greek Orthodox, where you kind of have a lot more cultural ideas in common. You're joining Coptic Orthodox, which is Egyptians. (laughs) And so there was that whole disconnect. So that's what I want to ask you is why Coptic Christianity? Why did oh, you yeah. become like Antiochian, which many Americans convert to Antiochian or Greek? Like what in the world made you say, I think we'll become Egyptian Orthodox? Right. Well, first of all, because I knew it'd be easy to find you just walk into any church and I'm the blonde one. So, okay. you know, it's simple. Um, my husband always says it's the kofta, which is like this amazing food. <laughs> but uh, we did attend an Antiochian church that's actually local and was fantastic. We attended a Greek church. And when we're talking today about orthodoxy, I want you to know I'm I'm representing orthodoxy. Right. Unless specifically I mention Coptic orthodoxy. Right. So, um, but here we are in the Coptic church. And really, because of the persecution the Egyptians have been through literally since the beginning with the Byzantines and with the Muslim invasion, and they have been through a constant process of persecution, they've really stayed who they were when the apostles founded the church. They, the, the ethos has remained. And so... The academia that is in Antiochian and in Russian is amazing, but there's this humility and this embracing of suffering, and there's just this ancient ethos that really drew us to Coptic. Okay. So I know that as you and your husband interacted with the the priests, the abunas, in that stream, you were really struck by their Christian testimony and their high level of Christian maturity Mm -hmm. and humility. And you were very impressed with their ethos. I guess I'm curious, like, how do you see an Egyptian Abuna compare and contrast that with an American 21st century non-denominational pastor like how are those what do you see as being different in their demeanor that was attractive to you that like yeah I think this is the path we're going to go down oh huge huge difference and I'm going to speak about the pastors that I had that were wonderful I can't speak for every single pastor Um, some of them are, are amazing shepherds um the majority that I encountered were Excellent teachers. They weren't necessarily shepherds. The that's kind of the megachurch model. Though, yeah, is that you're you're a teaching pastor. You're not shepherding all your people because there's just too many. There's just too many. Yeah, right. Well, and this is why uh, any given parish will have uh, at times if it's a large parish, it'll have two, three, four priests because you need to have that for the spiritual. So people can turn out. So people can be known. Yes. So um, to answer your question is, how is it different? It's just, it's vastly different in the sense of you have a spiritual father that guides you through things. And when I talked about confession, let's talk about that, that when I sit with him, it's not like the Catholic model 
that um, it's, uh, do you get in a little booth? No, with no booth, no booth. And typically you're, you're, you're sitting in church, you're sitting in his office. Uh, he usually has, has, you, has you in front of Christ and you're usually uh, shoulder to shoulder. Um, so not face sit, face. sitting yeah. side by side. So you and I, up at Christ. we're looking at Christ okay. and, and he's there as a witness. He's, he's, that's, you're not confessing necessarily to him. No, I'm f- confessing to the Lord. And you're, he's listening in mm-hmm. as a spiritual father. Yes. So that he can give you advice, scriptural advice, spiritual advice. And exactly. Advice. And it's not it's not transactional how we've seen with our Roman Catholic friends where it has become like uh, juridical. It's become a legal thing. Okay, this crime, this sin requires this payment, this many Hail Marys, this many Our Fathers. It's not like that at all in any any part of orthodoxy outside of our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. What it is is, okay, I'm struggling with this. And it's like, okay, well, Let's try this. I went, okay, I'll tell you my confessions. Okay. I was at, I was struggling at work and I'm like, you know, there's this person that I just want to punch them in the throat. I literally said that to my priest. I just, I can't. I just want to punch this person in the throat. And he said, okay, well. Okay. He said, he's, he's, uh, yes, yeah, he's a spiritual father. He's not, oh my gosh. So he, and then plus he's the one I sit with all the time. So he knows I'm a little, you know. So he says, okay, well, uh, there are three options. He says, you you can punch him in the throat. And um, I know that you'll eventually come back to me and you'll confess because that's not who you are. You're not okay with that and you'll feel bad about it. So that is one option. Um, another option is that you can take the torment that is happening to you and um, endure it you know, and, and become stronger from it. Or you can take it one step farther and you can thank God for the suffering that you're going through, that you're being united with Christ and actually turn this into love for the person that's, that's actually helping you have a deeper union with the Lord's suffering. All three are valid, whatever you want to do. Well, you know, what are you going to do? Each one's more noble than the other. It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to go punch him in the throat. Yeah, no, I think I But, uh, but that's, that's, that's what a spiritual father looks like. And they do this with all of their congregants. And this is what I don't see typically in the so it's, church. It's a type of shepherding, mm-hmm. pastoral care, like you said, spiritual father. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes one of the things that I have gained from watching you and your husband go through this process of meeting with your priest is that the transformation and the progress and the change in both of you is like, well, we, I think there's a, I've come to think how impoverished we are as Protestants. So what we do when we have these kinds of problems is we go in Facebook groups yeah, and we say, hey, I'm having this struggle with my coworker. I don't know what to do. And then we invite everybody to give us their input and then we we're left to try to sort it out. Or, hey, I'm having problems with porn addiction or whatever. Yes. I don't know a way out of this. Yes. 
and then you try to enlist other people to help. But but having that spiritual father that has been walking a road with you step by step and basically knows all your crap. Yes. Yeah. And that he's there to help guide you, pray with you, pray for you, make recommendations of, hey, like maybe think about read this book or um, maybe investigate this church father, this saint might be an inspiration to you as you're struggling with this area, giving you that guidance. Mm -hmm. That has a transformational effect does through the relationship. We as Protestants, we don't have that. No. In most cases. And you look at it, you've made that comment to me before. It's so heartbreaking when I hear people talk about their problems and I think really the longing they have is for a spiritual father. And we live in such a father-impoverished culture already. Wow. Wow. We've got 70% of African-American babies being born into a single parent family. The fathering is what is needed. Mm -hmm. These are, in my opinion, the new orphans that scripture speaks to. And the 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 spiritual father tradition in orthodoxy i think we as protestants would do well to reflect on that it's uh, what you oh my gosh what you said is is so profound and it's it's heartbreaking and it's i don't come at it from ours is superior or right. this is the That's way that the ancient church has always done it it literally makes me want to cry when I have my, my Protestant friends say, I'm struggling with this or that. And it's like, and I wish you had an abuna. I wish you had a priest. Because, you know, in the in the West, in the contemporary church, we've replaced these things with accountability groups, you know, or an accountability partner or Bible study. Or we've, we, we see the hole and the gap there. We, we see the need. We see the need. But so we've, we've we plugged it in with other things. But um, the thing is, is how many Bible studies, how many accountability groups or accountability partners have we bared our soul about something that's dangerous? If this gets out there, if anyone learns this about me, it could ruin my life. It could ruin my marriage. And then someone turns on you. And they they share this. They tell this thing that you that you shared in confidence with them, and all of a sudden it's gossip everywhere. See, this is the thing that the the church, not just the abunas, but the church. That priest, if he if he shares anything that's told to him in confession, he will be defrocked. He will no longer be a priest. He's out of the church. He's not going to go away for two months and then come back and restart a new ministry. No, that's not how. No, or go to the parish down the street. You know, no, no, this is serious. So there is a confidence level there that that even though my Protestant friends have have shored up in the the best ways they can, they don't have that safety. They don't have the one person that walks through them in all of the messes of their life. It's yeah, that's so good. Well, now. Um, there's so many things that we could talk things. about, but we, we don't want to have all the things. I know you should call this show, show all the things that you got your buddy. <laughs> uh, but there's there's a lot of um, 
things we could talk about, but I, I do want to ask you, um, after your conversion, after you announced it, I'm sure people came to you with concerns. Oh, no. All my Protestant friends were so excited for me. <laughs> they, they're like, conversion Yay, party. Conversion party. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. My, my main concern was, why did you change your name? This is so confusing. So let's talk about that. I, I was, I was going to share about uh, a, a friend who shall rename the name remain nameless that um, was was very concerned that that came to me and said, who changes their name except for somebody that is avoiding the law or has joined a cult? Yeah. <laughs> Which I was, yeah, well, you got a point. But um, yeah, this, and you legally changed your name. I did. You went to the court, you raised your I right did. hand, and yes, I did. So well, why? So tell us. And if it counts, like I only legally, I'm still Michelle. Yeah, I know. Because it's Michelle Anastasia. I just go by Anastasia. So we're still friends. We're good. But, um, but what it was, was my middle name at that time was a legacy name from a family member who, God bless her, uh, was a very broken and not well person. And I never liked that legacy. Secondly, the day I was baptized, my spiritual father who had been guiding us through this horrible mess for the past year uh when you get baptized you get a baptismal name uh, the babies get it it's like people typically don't change their name or whatever but i told him you'd pick my name i i don't even want to know what it is until the day i'm baptized you choose it you tell me i'm like you're my spiritual father that makes most sense so there i am ready to be baptized and he he says you ready and i'm like yes and he said anastasia and i could I, it was like time stood still when he said it. It was like, it was so beautiful. Just Anastasia. It was just beautiful. Then he said it means resurrection. Mm -hmm. Anastasis. Anastasis. Yeah. And so there is a Saint Anastasia, but I was not named after her. I was named after resurrection. And it just seemed like a, a promise from the Lord. Uh, like it was from God himself. And I needed resurrection. And so, um, I wasn't going to change my name, Michelle, because that my dad gave me that name. Um, but it was time for resurrection. Yeah. It was time. So symbolic of your conversion. It was a Christian name. It was uh, something of walking into something new. Yeah. I love the meaning of it. And uh, you were so gracious with me and, and giving me time to transition. I remember the day I finally changed it in my phone. And mm -hmm. and I messaged you and said, okay, I finally feel like I can change it in my phone and yeah. change it in my contacts. And and it didn't, uh, Michelle wasn't the first name that came to me, but you, you were so gracious with me. And just even uh, to me, the name is just symbolic of your grace toward me and letting me have my own journey with your conversion. And you were so patient in answering all my questions. Now I'm going to cry. That Monique always says I'm I'm so emotional, but it it just it was so meaningful to me that you were willing to be in the friendship with me. Of course, even though I was confused and concerned, I had my own concerns. I mean, here I am a theologian, and I'm like, I don't know how to make sense of this. I don't. I barely even know what Coptic Christianity is. I had forty thousand questions. 
I tried not to ask them all on the same day. But, um, you know, what were some of the typical issues that people expressed to you that, that they had concerns about and that you had to kind of walk with people on that road? Yeah. Uh, ours was one of the roughest. Um, oh, great. <laughs> just, no, just because I I do love you so much and I've always loved you. Uh, so yes, when, you know, God bless you for saying about my grace, but it was like, call me Michelle, call me Penelope, call me whatever. I don't care what you call me because this is what I'm being called. Um, it's not worth, it's not worth losing the, the yeah. friendship. Yeah. So we'll, we'll work through this. Yeah. Um, so I just want you to know that I, I've always deeply loved you. And that was never like, oh, she's upset with me or yeah. like, it was never worth risking that. As far as other concerns that were common, I, I I work with people that are apologists and, you know, have friends that are very much theologically astute. So they're not usually the, hey, whatever works for you, great. You yeah. know, they, they want to know. And it comes from a genuinely concern. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. So there's controversy surrounding first of all when you get into orthodoxy but then even more so with oriental or coptic orthodoxy that i had people seriously concerned pulling me off to the side and and literally telling me you do realize you're becoming a heretic well and and to be honest the only thing i knew about coptic christianity mm -hmm. the one and only thing i was taught in seminary eight years of seminary about coptic christianity was that they were monophysites heretics. Yep. And so when, and I'm like, w when when you told me you were, you know, we had the conversation after your conversion, I was like, oh, I'm so confused now. I, I don't know what to think, you know? And you were so patient with me in explaining, you know, all of the history of that and the misunderstanding and how there's been all this movement and orthodoxy of reunification between those two streams. And, and you know, so there's, yeah. but, Things in orthodoxy move slow. Yes, very slow. <laughs> Nobody's going to make a quick move. Right. But, um, you know, I think people were, were confused because there is a common perception in Protestantism, in academia, that that's the only thing we need to know about Coptic Christians is that they're monophysite heretics. Right. Well, and again, if you just talk about orthodox in general, there is a common belief that Orthodox believe that they're saved by works and not by faith and right. that tradition is over the Bible. And there's there are a number of that we we pray to dead people that there is a lot that, yeah, it was my red flags, too. Yeah. And I don't consider myself unintelligent or running headlong into these things. And so, yes, I did sort through these things. Yes, I did find solid answers. I was speaking to a Coptic group recently and was kind of sharing an experience with a couple different people that were more vociferous and more, you know, upset about it. And they were shocked, like, oh, these were friends and they, I, you know, these were people that, that you cared about. And I, and I had to pump the brakes on them saying, these are people that cared about me. And I, I told them like, if you're, if, if your kid was just like, you know, mom, I'm going to leave the church. I'm I'm going to go become a Jehovah's Witness and LDS. And would you be like, oh, Habibi, that's fine. Like, as long as you're in church, you know, that's great. And, and their face was like, oh, heck no. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, we're the LDS. We're the Jehovah's Witnesses to them that 
we reject X, Y, and Z in their minds. So it was out of love and, and, and compassion. Yeah. yeah. And I think that what was helpful to me in that season was you encouraging me to look into things, you know, to understand better arguments. Now, on on those things, I, I have to say, you know, like there's reasons why I'm still a Protestant. There are arguments that I don't find compelling or convincing. But that's not to say that that most Protestants don't even understand the Orthodox position. And this is kind of a um, pet peeve of mine, mm-hmm. uh, of when people come on my page or come on a live stream and, and they're condemning Orthodox Christians, but they've got like this straw man type of understanding of the doctrine or the practice. And um, they don't really, they haven't made much of an effort to really understand it. Now, you and I have differences about um, beliefs and practices, but I have studied so much of your side of the conversation now. I could probably persuade some Protestants to become Orthodox <laughs> okay. because I know the arguments so well mm-hmm. because I had to get to a point of my own conviction of what do I really believe about this. And so I think the beauty in that, though, is, first of all, a deeper understanding of my side of the conversation, a deeper understanding of your side of the conversation, and being able to find um, the places where we genuinely agree Mm -hmm. and the sisterhood that we could have in Christ. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to so other you as to to make it seem like you're LDS or a Jehovah's Witness to me, you know? So I think on my side of the, the discussion, that's what it's been like for me. Um, I don't know if you want to add to that at all. I think the thing I would add is, as as we're bringing up LDS and Jehovah's Witnesses, what I notice is our tendency to go within our own circles to find out about the other. Yes, and we don't engage the other. And I remember having a lovely conversation with someone that, that you introduced me to who was LDS. Mm-hmm. And, well, gee, talk to a Mormon about Mormonism? Yeah. What, what a novel concept. You know, no, I'm going to go over and read this book by this Protestant Christian about, you know, Mormonism that studied it and everything. They studied it. <laughs> it's like, well, this, this person does hold these beliefs. And same thing with the Jehovah's Witness or... Orthodox or a Roman. He was Catholic. able to hear your side of the conversation. Mm-hmm. He didn't know anything about orthodoxy. Right. And it actually was helpful to him in some, some regards. So I, I'm a big advocate of that. And I think our friendship, you've taught me that, is go to that person, try to understand their arguments. How do they come at the issue? Allow them to be in, the expert in their own belief system. Rather than say, well, here's what here's what you know you're supposed to believe. Well, you know maybe there's something else there for for us to learn. Right. There's always nuances. Yeah. There's always nuances. I think another thing on my side of the discussion has been so helpful is um, the help that you've given me and my family, my children, to understand like the core of the faith. That, you know, we agree on the Trinity. We agree on the deity of Christ. There's so many things that we do agree on. 
and that has given you know one of my children the the wherewithal to to be able to search into more ancient faith practices and streams with confidence because she's seen the friendship that you and I have been able to maintain, even though we have some differences, um, that, hey, look, these core things stand at the foundation of our faith. And here's where I can stand and still be in touch with ancient faith practices and, and ideas. So I hope that that'll be a takeaway for some people. Well, thank God. I'm I'm glad. Um, there are few people that are multilingual in faith expressions. And so it's been really wonderful for my husband and I because we speak, we fluently speak Protestant. And so we're able to translate for our Coptic friends. And we speak Coptic or we speak Orthodox. Yeah. So we're able to translate for our Protestant friends because you say something like salvation. It's like, well, you guys believe you're saved by your works. And it's like, what? and, the, and the, the Orthodox, you ask that person that, yeah. well, yes. And it's like, hold the, you know, pump the brakes. They don't mean salvation in the same way that you are saying salvation. Yeah. And so it's because we're and bilingual works in the same and way. They, we don't mean works in the same way. Yeah. So there, there's, a, there's something that's wonderful that when I get to see it play out, like with your daughter and with yourself, that it's like, oh, lovely. We've built some bridges and started to create a better understanding. Yeah. And um, in Monique's journey coming out of critical race theory, you also played a role in that as well. And is all of the conversations you and I had about the impact of North Africa, Eastern Africa in early Christianity when she came at me with all of these ideas about white theology and black theology, I was able to say to her, like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Because I said, if you were to talk to my friend Sia, who's a member of the Coptic church, you go to her Coptic church, you're going to see a bunch of brown people who have been believing the same thing since 60 AD and their church was founded by the Apostle Mark. I said, this whole white, black theology thing, to me, that's the wrong question. The question is, is what have Christians historically believed? Yes. And how do you go back as ancient as possible to what they have believed? When I told her that, it just made her mind melt. And <laughs> and she had never thought of that before. Uh -huh. But that got her out of the false dichotomy of white theology, black theology, and she's, it helped her find a different question of what if Christians always believed. And we had your friend Carillos on the show very early in her journey. And he was so instrumental in kind of providing, um, starting to create more cracks in, in, her, in her framework and bringing her out of that discussion. We met with um, Abuna, was it Abuna Anthony? So. from yes. uh, Coptic Answers. Yes. We had him on a couple times. That was also very helpful to us. Uh, in my own journey, you connected, with, connected with, with another Abuna who had been influential in your life, and he had some conversations with me. All of these things have played into my journey, my family's journey, Monique's journey, and what a wonderful thing that has been. 
So glory to God. And can I just say, I love Monique because she's she's willing to like jump in and get wrecked and be messed <laughs> up. And what about this and that? And but she gives it a fair hearing. I yeah. love that about her. Yeah, I love that. Well, this has been so much fun. Um, I want to refer people to your book. Tell us about your book and, um, you know, who it's for and what made you write it. My husband decided to write this because every time the young people would um, listen to our story about our coming to orthodoxy, they would ask, like, why would you leave evangelicalism? Why would you leave services there were 45 minutes to an hour to go stand for three hours and fast for most of the year and now coptics from what i said they fast more than any but any other tradition yeah it's it's more than 200 days yeah here that that they fast so they're just like i don't get this right so we'd always find ourselves explaining and explaining the journey and how we got there and we had multiple priests multiple people saying you need to put this in a book and we're like what who are we like oh here's a book about us who cares really so finally my husband's just like all right i'm just gonna do this because we keep getting asked and then he he said i want you to write your part i'm like you tell the whole story you're good um but he convinced me that it was both of our journeys. It's um, it is our American or my American flight to Egypt, is is the name of the book. Yeah, and we got your pictures right on the on the cover here, yeah. and there you guys are. I assume that's at your conversion. That's the day we were baptized. Okay, and that is the red sash that is tied around us after baptism, showing us that we were purchased with Christ's blood and that at any time it can be required of us as well. Okay. So that that is our book and our story. The first there is in thirds and it was written mostly to the Coptic people, the young people, okay. college age, uh, young professionals that have been asking us these questions. The first third is Tilo's story from pretty much from childhood up to conversion and a really dysfunctional really dysfunctional family and and how that played into everything then mine also from childhood to uh just shortly after conversion and again uh, just kind of some messiness in there we were both very candid and then finally my husband concludes it with a the piece that's more less storytelling and more comparative theology okay so that's fine so if people are interested in and in wanting to know more about that they can check out your book it's on amazon and find out more about your story I think as we're wrapping up here, what advice would you give to Orthodox converts mm-hmm. like yourself? Not necessarily merely Coptic converts, but Orthodox in general. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you see as common mistakes that they make toward their Protestant friends? Oh, my lands. Then I'll flip the table. Yeah. the There is a zeal that comes with any conversion. Um the organization that I work for is an old earth organization. And and when I came to learn about that, I was like, oh, those young earthers, you know, there's this zeal that comes naturally. Um, but you want everybody to come along to your more excellent understanding. My excellent understanding of scriptures. And it's like, and then I think that there's an anger that comes along with any huge epiphany like that, where you feel like you've been lied to. 
and you feel like you've been misled and you start asking questions like, why didn't these people know this? And why didn't somebody tell me this before? So there's there's an anger, there's um, a passion, there's a feeling like, yes, I know way more than all these people. There can be even an urgency, like everybody needs to know this, right? So what I've seen and especially in the Antiochian uh, and Greek, because they have just a lot more converts, is you see this passion where I was a Protestant and all of a sudden it's those stupid Protestants when they're, they're not attached to history and um, just really marginalizing. And then all things I found myself, and I, and I share this in the book, where... I could not talk about my Orthodox Christian faith without comparing it. This is why this is why it's superior to the Protestant faith. And God like really brought it to my attention. Like you can't even you can't even talk about the beauty of this without juxtaposing it. And honestly, it was you that you had watched one of our videos and just were candid. You weren't angry or didn't come across as angry, but you said. I don't think that that was a fair representation of what Protestants believe. And when you said that, first of all, I was mortified that you had seen it. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> no, because in my mind, I we were recording this to a small group in a church. I forgot that they're recording it and they're, they're sending it out. Putting it on the internet. On the whole world. <laughs> so I had no idea that my friend was going to see this and and i would have never said it this way to my friend um which means i shouldn't have said that that way at all um so god has humbled me quite a bit that i don't know as much as i think i know and though you speak with the tongues of angels and don't have love your you know sounding gong and clanging cymbal it's like if you don't if you don't have love you can have everything right and even before the eyes of the Lord, it's worthless. That's good. What would you say to Protestants if they have friends who convert to Orthodoxy? Um, what what are what could we do better? Um, openly, openly ask questions. Open mindedly ask questions. Like have genuine curiosity. Have yeah, not just gotcha questions. Yes, not gotcha questions. You can be concerned and you can say you're concerned. That might even help because otherwise there, it's a breach in this very meaningful friendship. And it's like, is this going to cost me my friendship? So maybe assure them, okay, I, I'm, not, I'm not wanting to part ways with you as a friend. I'm trying to understand this because I care and I want to understand this. And that's kind of how I tried to approach it. I don't know if it was very effective. They were. Yeah. Uh, it was like, help me understand this yeah. because I care about us mm -hmm. and I want us to keep walking together. You're my friend. You've been with me through a lot. We've been through a lot. And you've stepped into something that I really don't understand. Right. And so help me understand this. And through that, maybe we've both grown a little bit. God willing, yes. God willing, God willing. God have mercy on us. Yes. And our humanness. <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, thank you all. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and getting to know Sia a little bit better and a little bit of our journey together. It's been fun to to talk to you. I wish every interview could be in person. This has been wonderful. Um, anyways, I do look forward to your feedback. I know some of you are going to have concerns about 
presenting somebody who is Coptic in such a positive light. That's okay. We can have the conversation. I've had Orthodox people on the show before. And um, I know some of you, is it's going to be hard. That's okay. And, uh, you know, we'll just be in that hard space together. That's all right. I'm comfortable with that. But I want to encourage you to study, to ask questions, and to really try to understand your own positions better as a result of this conversation. Thank you so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.